Volume the Second, Chapter Nine of Helen. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Helen by Maria Edgeworth, Volume the Second, Chapter Nine. It was rather worse when the ladies were by themselves. Some of the party were personally strangers to Lady Davenant. All had heard of her sufficiently. Most had formed a formidable and false opinion of her. Helen was quite astonished at the awe her ladyship inspired in strangers. Lady Davenant's appearance and manner at this moment were not, indeed, calculated to dispel this dread. She was unusually distant and haughty, from a mistaken sort of moral pride. Aware that some of the persons now before her had, in various ways, by their own or their husband's means, power to serve or to injure Lord Davenant, she disdained to propitiate them by the slightest condescension. But how any persons in England, in London, could be strangers to Lady Davenant, was, to a foreign lady who was present, matter of inexpressible surprise. She could not understand how the wives of persons high in political life, some of opposite, but some of the same parties, should often be personally strangers to each other. Foreigners are, on first coming to England, apt to imagine that all who act together in public life must be of the same private society. While, on the contrary, it often happens that the ladies especially of the same party are in different grades of fashion, moving in different orbits. The number of different circles and orbits in London is, indeed, astonishing to strangers, and the manner in which, though touching at tangents, these keep each their own path, attracted and repelled, or mutually influential, is to those who have not seen and studied the planisphere absolutely incomprehensible. And, as she pondered on this difficulty, the ambassadress, all foreigner as she was, and all unused to silence, spoke not, and no one spoke, and naught was heard but the cup on the saucer, or the spoon in the cup, or the buzzing of a fly in the window. In the midst of this awful calm it was that Lady Bearcroft blurted out with loud voice, Amazing entertaining we are! So many clever people got together, too, for what? It was worth while to have seen Lady Masham's face at that moment. Lady Bearcroft saw it, and, fearing no mortal, struck with the comic of that look of Lady Masham's, burst into laughter uncontrolled, and the contrast of dignity and gravity in Lady Davenant only made her laugh the more, till out of the room at last she ran. Lady Masham, all the while, of course, never betrayed the slightest idea that she could, by any possibility, have been the object of Lady Bearcroft's mirth. But Lady Davenant, how did she take it? To her daughter's infinite relief, quite quietly, 
she looked rather amused than displeased she bore with lady bearcroft altogether better than could have been expected because she considered her only as a person unfortunately out of her place in society and without any fault of her own dragged up from below to a height of situation for which nature had never intended and neither art nor education had ever prepared her whose faults and deficiencies were thus brought into the flash of day at once before the malice of party and the fastidiousness of fashion which knows not to distinguish between man d'esprit and man d'usage not so lady davenant she made liberal and philosophic allowance for even those faults of manner which were most glaring and she further suspected that lady bearcroft purposely exaggerated her own vulgarity partly for diversion partly to make people stare and partly to prevent their seeing what was habitual and what was involuntary by hiding the bounds of reality of this lady masham had not the most distant conception on the contrary she was now prepared to tell a variety of odd anecdotes of lady bearcroft she had seen she said this extraordinary person before but had never met her in society and delighted she was unexpectedly to find her here quite a treat such characters are indeed seldom met with at a certain height in the atmosphere of society and such were peculiarly and justly lady masham's delight for they relieved and at the same time fed a sense of superiority insufficient to itself such a person is fair privileged safe game and lady masham began as does a reviewer determined to be especially severe with a bit of praise really very handsome lady bearcroft must have been yes as you say lady cecilia she is not out of blow yet certainly only too full-blown rather for some tastes fortunately not for sir benjamin he married her you know long ago for her beauty she is a very correct person always was but they do repeat the strangest things she says so very odd and they tell such curious stories too of things she does lady masham then detailed a variety of anecdotes which related chiefly to lady bearcroft's household cares which never could she with haste dispatch then came stories of her cheap magnificence and extraordinary toilette expedients i own continued lady masham that i always thought the descriptions i heard must be exaggerated but one is compelled to acknowledge that there is here in reality a terrible want of tat poor sir benjamin i quite pity him he must so see it though not of the first water himself yet still he must feel when he sees lady bearcroft with other people he has feeling though nobody would guess it from his look and he shows it too i am told sadly annoyed he is sometimes by her malapropisms one day she at one end of the table and he at the other her ladyship in her loud voice called out to him sir benjamin 
Sir Benjamin, this is our wedding day. He, poor man, did not hear. She called out again louder. Sir Benjamin, my dear, this day fifteen years ago you and I were married. Well, my dear, he answered. Well, my dear, how can I possibly help that now? Pleased with the success of this anecdote, which raised a general smile, Lady Masham vouched for its perfect correctness. She had it from one who heard it from a person who was actually present at the time it happened. Lady Davenant had not the least doubt of the correctness of the story, but she believed the names of the parties were different. She had heard it years ago of another person. It often happens, as she observed, to those who make themselves notoriously ridiculous, as to those who become famous for wit, that all good things in their kinds are attributed to them, though the one may have no claim to half the witticisms, and the other may not be responsible for half the absurdities for which they have the reputation. It required all Lady Masham's politeness to look pleased, and all her candor to be quite happy to be set right as to the last anecdote. But many she had heard of Lady Bearcraft were really incredible. Yet one would almost believe anything of her. While she was yet speaking, Lady Bearcroft returned, and her malicious enemy, leaning back in her chair as if in expectation of the piece beginning, waited for her puppet to play or be played off. All this time Lady Cecilia was not at ease. She, well aware what her mother would feel, and had felt, while Lady Masham was going on with this gossip talk, had stood between her ladyship and Lady Davenant, and, as Lady Masham did not speak much above her breath, Cecilia had for some time flattered herself that her laudable endeavours to intercept the sound, or to prevent the sense from reaching her mother's ear, had succeeded, especially as she had made as many exclamations as she could of, really, indeed, how extraordinary, you don't say so, which, as she pronounced them, might have excited the curiosity of commonplace people, but which she knew would, in her mother's mind, deaden all desire to listen. However, Lady Masham had raised her voice, and from time to time had stretched her neck of snow beyond Lady Cecilia's intercepting drapery, so as actually to claim Lady Davenant's attention. The consequences her daughter heard and felt. She heard the tap, tap, tap of the ivory folding knife upon the table, and while interpreting, she knew, even before she saw her mother's countenance, that Lady Masham had undone herself, and, what was of much more consequence, had destroyed all chance of accomplishing that reconciliation with Mama, that projected coalition which was to have been of such ultimate advantage to Papa. Notwithstanding Lady Bearcroft's want of knowledge of the great world, she had considerable knowledge of human nature, which stood her wonderfully instead. She had no notion of being made sport of for the elegance, and with all Lady Masham's plausibility of persiflage, she never obtained her end. 
and never elicited anything really absurd by all attempts to draw her out. Out she would not be drawn. After an uncontrollable silence and all the semblance of dead stupidity, Lady Bearcroft suddenly showed signs of life, however, and she, all at once, began to talk, to Helen, of all people, and why? Because she had taken, in her own phrase, a monstrous fancy to Miss Stanley. She was not sure of her name, but she knew she liked her nature, and it would be a pity that her reason should not be known, and in the words in which she told it to Lady Cecilia, now i will just tell you why i have taken such a monstrous fancy to your friend here miss hanley miss stanley give me leave to mention said lady cecilia let me introduce you regularly oh by no means don't trouble yourself now lady cecilia for i hate regular introductions but as i was going to tell you how before dinner to-day as i came down the great staircase I had an uncommon large, big, and, for aught I know, yellow corking-pin, which that most careless of all careless maids of mine, a good girl, too, had left sticking point foremost out of some part of me. Miss Hanley, Stanley, beg pardon, was behind, and luckily saw and stopped. Out oh, she pulled it, begging my pardon, so kindly, too, I only felt the twitch on my sleeve, and turned, and loved the first sight I had of that pretty face, which need never blush, I am sure, though it's very becoming the blush, too. So good-natured, you know, Lady Cecilia, it was, when nobody was looking, and before anybody was the wiser. Not like some young ladies, or even old, that would have showed one up rather than help when out in any pin's point of a difficulty. Lady Cecilia herself was included in Lady Bearcroft's good graces, for she liked that winning way, and saw there was a real good nature there, too. She opened to both friends cordially, apropos to some love of a lace trimming. Of lace she was a famous judge, and she went into details of her own good bargains, with histories of her expeditions into the extremity of the city in search of cheap goods and unheard-of wonders at prime cost, in regions unknown. She told how it was her clever way to leave her carriage and her people, and go herself down narrow streets and alleys, where only wheelbarrows and herself could go. She boasted of her feats in diving into dark dens in search of run goods charming things, French, warranted, that could be had for next to nothing, and in exemplification showed the fineness of her embroidered cambric handkerchiefs and told their price to farthing. Lady Masham's wonderful was worthy of any Jesuit, male or female, that ever existed. From her amazing bargains, the lady of the law knight went on to smuggling, and as she got into spirits, talking loudly, she told of some amber satin, a whole piece capitally got over in an old gentleman's last will and testament, tied up with red tape so nicely, and sealed and superscribed and all, got through untouched. 
but a better thing I did myself, continued she, the last trip I made to Paris. Coming back, I set at defiance all the searchers and stabbers and custom-house officers of both nations. I had hundreds of pounds worth of Valenciennes and Brussels lace hid. He would never guess where. I never told a servant. Not a mortal maid, even. That's the only way. Had only a confidant of a coachmaker. But when it came to packing up time, my own maid smelt out the lace was missing and gave notice. I am confident to the custom-house people to search me. So much the more glory to me. I got off clear, and when they had stabbed the cushions and torn the inside of my carriage all to pieces, I very coolly made them repair the mischief at their own cost. Oh, I love to do things bravely, and away I drove, triumphant with the lace, well stuffed, packed, and covered within the pole leather of the carriage they had been searching all the time. At this period of her narrative, the gentleman came into the drawing-room. But here comes Sir Benjamin. Mum, mum, not a word more for my life. You understand, Lady Cecilia, husbands must be minded. And let me whisper a favor, a whist-party I must beg. Nothing keeps Sir Ben in good humor so certainly as whist when he wins, I mean. The whist party was made, and Lady Cecilia took care that Sir Benjamin should win, while she lost with the best grace possible. By her conciliating manners and good management in dividing to govern, all parties were arranged to general satisfaction. Mr. Harley's antipathy, the attaché, she settled at Eckhart with Lady Masham, who found him quite a well-mannered, pleasant person. Lady Cecilia explained to Mr. Harley that it was her fault, her mistake entirely, that this person had been invited. Mr. Harley was now himself again, and happy in conversation with Lady Davenant, besides whom he found his place on the sofa. After Helen had done her duty at harp and pianoforte, Cecilia relieved her, and whispered that she might now go to her mother's sofa and rest and be happy. Mamma's work is in some puzzle, Helen. You must go and set it to rights, my dear. Lady Davenant welcomed her with a smile, made room for her on the sofa, and made over to her the tambour frame. And now that Helen saw and heard Mr. Harley in his natural state, she could scarcely believe that he was the same person who had sat beside her at dinner. Animated and delightful he was now, and, what she particularly liked in him, there was no display, nothing in the Churchill style. Whenever anyone came near, and seemed to wish to hear or speak, Mr. Harley not only gave them fair play, but helped them in their play. Helen observed that he possessed the art which she had often remarked in Lord Davenant, peculiar to good-natured genius, the art of drawing something good out of everybody, sometimes more than they knew they had in them, till it was brought out. Even from Lord Masham, insipid and soulless though he was, as any courtier lord-in-waiting could be, something was extracted. Lord Masham, universally believed to have nothing in him, 
was this very evening surprisingly entertaining he gave lady davenant a description of what he had been so fortunate as to see the first public dinner of the king of france on his restoration served according to all the ci devant ceremonials and in the etiquette of louis the fourteenth's time lord basham represented in a lively manner the marquis de Dreux in all his antiquarian glory going through the whole form prescribed first knocking with his cane at the door then followed by three guards with shouldered carbines marching to buttery and hall each and every officer of the household making reverential obeisance as they passed to the nef the nef the nef being as lord masham explained to miss stanley a piece of gilt plate in the shape of the hull of a ship in which the napkins for the king's table are kept but why the hull of a ship should be appropriated to the royal napkins was asked lord basham confessed that this was beyond him but he looked amazingly considerate delicately rubbed his polished forehead with the second finger of the right hand then regarded his ring and turned it thrice slowly round but the talismanic action produced nothing and he received timely relief by a new turn given to the conversation in which he was not he thought called upon to take any share the question indeed appeared to him irrelevant and retiring to the card-table he left the discussion to abler heads the question was why bow to the nef at all this led to a discussion upon the advantages of ceremonials in preserving respect for order and reverence for authority and then came an inquiry into the abuses of this real good it was observed that the signs of the times should always be consulted and should guide us in these things how far was next to be considered all agreed on the principle that order is heaven's first law yet there were in the application strong shades of difference between those who took part in the conversation on one side it was thought that overturning the tabaret at the court of france had been the signal for the overthrow of the throne while on the other hand it was suggested that a rigid adherence to forms unsuited to the temper of the times only exasperates and that wherever reliance on forms is implicit it is apt to lead princes and their counsellors to depend too much on the strength of that fence which existing only in the imagination is powerless when the fashion changes in the court quite surrounded and enveloped by old forms the light of day cannot penetrate to the interior of the palace the eyes long kept in obscurity are wakened so that light cannot be borne when suddenly it breaks in the royal captive is bewildered and if obliged to act he gropes blunders injures himself and becomes incapable of decision in extremity of danger reduced to the helplessness which marks the condition of the eastern despot or le roi fanin of any time or country as helen sat by listening to this conversation 
what struck and interested her most was the manner in which it went on and went off without leading to any unpleasant consequences notwithstanding the various shades of opinion between the parties this she saw depended much on the good sense and talents but far more on the good breeding and temper of those who spoke and those who listened time in the first place was allowed and taken for each to be understood and no one was urged by exclamation or misconception or contradiction to say more than just the thing he thought lady cecilia who had now joined the party was a little in pain when she heard louis the fourteenth's love for punctuality alluded to she dreaded when the general quoted punctuality is the virtue of princes that mr harley with the usual impatience of genius would have ridiculed so antiquated a notion but to lady cecilia's surprise he even took the part of punctuality in a very edifying manner he distinguished it from mere ceremonial etiquette the ceremonial of the german courts where they lose time at breakfast at dinner at supper at court in the antechamber on the stairs everywhere punctuality was he thought a habit worthy to be ranked with the virtues by its effects upon the mind the power it demands and gives of self-control raising in us a daily hourly sense of duty of something that ought that must be done one of the best habits human creatures can have either for their own sake or the sake of those with whom they live and to kings and couriers most particularly because it gives the idea of stability of duration and to the aged because it gives a sort of belief that life will last forever the general had often thought this but said he had never heard it so well expressed he afterwards acknowledged to cecilia that he found mr harley was quite a different person from what he had expected he has good sense as well as genius and good breeding i am glad my dear cecilia that you asked him here this was a great triumph towards the close of the evening when mortals are beginning to think of bedchamber candles lady cecilia looked at the ecarte table and said to her mother how happy they are and how comfortable we are a card table is really a necessary of life not even music is more universally useful mr harley said i doubt and then arose between lady davenant and him an argument upon the comparative power in modern society of music and cards mr harley took the side of music but lady davenant inclined to think that cards in their day and their day is not over yet have had a wider range of influence nothing like that happy board of green cloth it brings all intellects to one level she said mr harley pleaded the cause of music which he said hushes all passions calms even despair lady davenant urged the silent superiority of cards which rests the weary talker and relieves the perplexed courtier and in support of her opinion 
she mentioned an old ingenious essay on cards and tea by pinto she thought and she begged that helen would some time look for it in the library helen went that instant she searched but could not find where it ought to have been there it of course was not while she was still on the book ladder the door opened and enter lady bearcroft miss hanley cried she i have a word to say to you for though you are a stranger to me i see you are a dear good creature and i think i may take the liberty of asking your advice in a little matter helen who had by this time descended from the steps stood and looked a little surprised but said all that was properly civil gratified by lady bearcroft's good opinion happy to be of service etc etc well then sit ye down one instant miss hanley helen suggested that her name was stanley stanley eh yes i remember but i want to consult you since you are so kind to allow me on a little matter but do sit down i never can talk of business standing now i just want you my dear miss hanley to do a little job for me with lady davenant who with half an eye can see is a great friend of yours aren't i right helen said lady davenant was indeed a very kind friend of hers but still what it could be in which lady bearcroft expected her assistance she could not imagine you need not be frightened at the word job if that is what alarms you continued lady bearcroft put your heart at ease there is nothing of that sort here it is only a compliment that i want to make and nothing in the world expected in return for it as it is a return in itself but in the first place look at this cover she produced the envelope of a letter is this lady davenant's handwriting thank you she pointed to the word miss sent written on the corner of the cover helen said it was lady davenant's writing you are certain well that is odd miss sent when it was directed to herself and nobody else on earth as you see as plain as possible countess davenant surely that is right enough then opening a red morocco case she showed a magnificent diamond sevenier observe now she continued these diamonds are so big my dear miss hanley stanley they would have been quite out of my reach only for that late french invention which maybe you have not heard of nor should i but for the hint of a friend at paris who is in the jewellery line the french you must know have got the art of sticking small diamonds together so as to make little worthless ones into large so that as you see you would never tell the difference and as it was a new discovery and something ingenious and scientific and lady davenant being reported to be a scientific lady as well as political and influential and all that i thought it a good opportunity and a fine excuse for paying her a compliment which i had long wished to pay for she was once on a time very kind to sir ben and got him appointed to his present station and though lord davenant was the ostensible person 
I considered her as the prime mover behind the curtain. Accordingly, I sat me down and wrote as pretty a note as I could pen, and Sir Ben approved of the whole thing, but I don't say that I'm positive he was as oft-handed and clean-hearted in the matter as I was, for between you and I his gratitude, as they say of some people's, is apt to squint with one eye to the future as well as one to the past. You comprehend? Helen was not clear that she comprehended all that had been said. Still less had she any idea what she could have to do in this matter. She waited for further explanation. Now, all I want from you then, Miss Hanley, Stanley, I would say, I beg pardon, I'm the worst at proper names that lives, but all I want of you, Miss Hanley, is, first your opinion as to the validity of the handwriting, well, you are positive, then, that this missent is her hand. Now then, I want to know, do you think Lady Davenant knew what she was about when she wrote it? Helen's eyes opened to their utmost power of distension at the idea of anybody's questioning that Lady Davenant knew what she was about. La, my dear, said Lady Bearcroft, spare the whites of your eyes. I didn't mean she didn't know what she was about in that sense. What sense? said Helen. Not in any particular sense, replied Lady Bearcroft. But let me go on or we shall never come to an understanding. I only meant that her ladyship might have just sat down to answer my note, as I often do myself, without having read the whole through, or before I have taken it in quite. Helen thought this very unlikely to have happened with Lady Davenant. But still it might have happened, continued Lady Bearcroft that her ladyship did not notice the delicacy of the way in which the thing was put, for it really was put so that nobody could take hold of it against any of us, you understand, and after all, such a curiosity of a sevenier as this, and such fine diamonds, was too pretty and too good a thing to be refused hand over head in that way. Besides, my note was so respectable and respectful, it surely required and demanded something more of an answer, methinks, from a person of birth or education than the single bald word, Miss Sent, like the postman. Surely, Miss Hanley, now putting your friendship apart, candidly you must think as I do, and whether or no, at least you will be so obliging to do me the favor to find out from Lady Davenant if she really made the reply with her eyes open or not, and really meant what she said. Helen, being quite clear that Lady Davenant always meant what she said, and had written with her eyes open, declined as perfectly useless, making the proposed inquiry. It was plain that Lady Davenant had not thought proper to accept of this present, and, to avoid any unpleasant explanations, had presumed it was not intended for her, but had been sent by a mistake. Helen advised her to let the matter rest. "'Well, well,' said Lady Bearcroft. "'Thank you, Miss Hanley, at all events for your good advice, but, neck or nothing, I am apt to go through with whatever I once take into my head, and since you cannot aid in a bet, 
I will trouble you no further, only not to say a word of what I have mentioned. But all the time I thank you, my dear young lady, as much as if I took your dictum. So, my dear Miss Henley, Stanley, do not let me interrupt you longer in your book hunt. Take care of that stepladder, though. It is coggledy, as I observed when you came down. Good night. Good night. End of Volume the Second, Chapter 9